you would please turn in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. We're looking at the first five verses. Chapter 10, 1 through 5, Matthew's Gospel. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles were these. There was first Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Father, help us to hear about these people, that we understand their personality, their character, and yet, Father, understand your provision. Father, it is you in us that is overwhelming. So, Father, I ask you, I ask you now, I beg you now, that you will help us to see, you help us to hear, and you help us to stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let us understand we must be disciples first before we are sent out. Father, may we hunger and thirst for righteousness. May we hunger and thirst for your word. And may we, with a longing of expectation, watch you do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could have ever thought or imagined. In Christ's name, amen. We're going through this on a kind of back up a little bit because there are times we get confused. It's easy to see that he summoned his 12 disciples. He summoned his 12 learners. And then when he sent them out, they became his apostles. Okay. Now, when you see the word apostle, it is apostolon. Okay. Sometimes you see it. Just apostolon. Sometimes you see it with a definite article, apostolon. The apostle Paul was a definite article, apostolon. Okay, the word apostolon is is not this magical, mystical thing. It means someone sent out. I know, golly, what a letdown. It's sort of like deacon. I want to be a deacon. You want to be a table waiter. Okay? All right. (laughs) Hope you get good tips. Because when I made a comment that Andrew was the first apostle martyred, people said, no, Stephen. No, Stephen was a table waiter. All right? If you have definite article apostle, Here's what you got to be really careful of. There are a lot of people who will call themselves apostles today. And what it means is, if it's a definite article, that the resurrected Christ showed up and called you out and sent you out. Or you're just like me. I am sent out. I am an apostle. I am an apostolon. I am not been called by the resurrected Christ. I have been trained and I have been 
sent out. Okay? Big difference. Okay? So, if you, you can't be saved and not be a disciple, a learner. At some point, my prayer is, you're willing to be sent out. And I mean, sent out is not, well, I'm going to Ethiopia. No, it could be to your co-worker. And we'll deal with that this morning. We've been looking at these guys, the twelve. We looked at Peter and Andrew, who were brothers. Andrew was called first. He was the reserved. He was the quiet one. Peter wasn't. I call Peter the loudmouth. Because if you look at it, he was. He was the spokesman of the twelve. And I mean, he was the one who always asked questions, that always had an answer, and always had his foot stuck in his mouth. All right, Andrew was his brother, but Andrew was called first, had been looking for Messiah and had found him and quickly went and got his brother. These were both fishermen. Then we looked at the sons of thunder, James and John. James was the first apostle martyred. Okay, John died of natural causes somewhere around uh, probably mid 90 A.D. About that. And he uh, died in Ephesus. All right. Now, there's a lot of things that they say about John. Some say that he was thrown in a vat of boiling tar and it had no effect on him. And he got out of it and, of course, began evangelizing and all the rest of it. But his brother was crucified in an X shape and preached for two days hanging on a cross the gospel of Jesus Christ because... James died by the sword from Herod. All right? So now I want to move to Philip. To Philip. Philip shows me something that I think you and I neglect. Okay? Philip shows us by his life the fertile soil for evangelism. Is friendship. Is friendship. Philip was a fisherman. He lived in a fishing community. He knew Peter. He knew Andrew. He knew James and John. He knew Nathaniel, a.k.a. Bartholomew. And he knew Thomas. Before becoming a disciple. All right. And and I share that because one of the most precious places to evangelize is friends. I am not an evangelist. I don't play one on television and I did not sleep in a holiday inn. All right. I know that I'm not an evangelist. And I can count on one hand the people that I have led to Christ. And I literally, as a senior pastor for 22 years, walking with the Lord for 35 years, there's five. Actually, there's four. One is completed. Okay? And when I look at them, all of them have the same thing in common. They were my friends. They were my friends. We meet Philip, and the reason that I say this 
In John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 43, okay, the next day, okay, this is the day after Jesus looked at him and said, You, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, now remember, Andrew's already been called, and he went and got his brother and says, Come here, we found him, and Jesus calls Peter. The next day, he proposes to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Okay, now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So what did do you do you see this brief text is amazing listen philip was seeking his heart was looking if if you're credible to history at the time of jesus calling these men the jews were looking for messiah They had been under Greek oppression. Now they were under Roman oppression. They were God's chosen people. It was God's nation. What in the Sam Cain is going on? They were looking. I spoke with a rabbi who is the rabbi of the Temple Mound in Jerusalem. Uh, He's from Brooklyn. And I asked him about Messiah. And... He gave me the different, quote-unquote, theories of Messiah. All right? And one of the theories is Messianic ages. If you are in a time of blessing, you are in a Messianic age. If you're in a time of trouble and travail, then you're not in a Messianic age. That can be seen in the lives of these men. They had been searching the scripture to find out, when does this fall apart? Remember Daniel? He understood that in the 70th year of the Babylonian captivity, the prophet had already told him they would be released. And he looked at that and says, so it is time. That's exactly what you see. And Nathaniel, you'll see that in him too. That they were looking for the scripture and when do we get out from underneath this Gentile oppression? It seems that he and Nathaniel had studied the scriptures and were anticipating the coming of Messiah. Israel had been oppressed uh, under two dictatorial commands. So when Jesus said to Philip, follow me, what was Philip's response? You betcha. You betcha. Philip was ready. Jeremiah, he had read in chapter 29, verse 13, describes a person such as Philip. Here's what it says. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. 
Now think about this for a second. Something that I have witnessed myself, but there's something that I can show you historically, that people do not seek the Lord with all of their heart when things are going well. Most of the people that I've ever met, and most of the people that I see in Scripture coming to salvation have fallen on some difficult times. And when you fall on the difficult times, you start trying to figure out, how in the, how, how do I get out of this? There's got to be more to this. I know in my case, I was on difficult times. I know that when I look at Nathaniel and Philip, I know that the oppression of the Roman government on the nation of Israel was very, very, very difficult. You were living day to day. There was no middle class. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. People who are doing well do not seek with all of their heart. Okay? So that's the first thing you see about Philip. All right? He understood that everything that was going on around him was out of his control. He had absolutely no way to conquer it. None. None. There's nothing I can do. It's not like I can run the Romans out. I have to pay my taxes. If I don't pay my taxes, I go to jail. The second thing that I see about Philip, he had a heart of evangelist. He lived in the town of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Jesus has just told him, follow me. What was his response? Philip found Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Matthew calls him Bartholomew. I'll explain that next week. It's the same person. The first thing he did after his own conversion was to lead Nathaniel to the person of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine his joy as he told his friend about the one that they had searched for he had found? Think about that for a second. Now, remember, these guys have got a crooked view of this. Messiah is going to whoop the Romans and set up his kingdom and we're all going to hang out with him and we're going to be close buds. And that's not exactly what was going on. But they were looking for Messiah. Messiah was going to take control of everything and was going to set up his kingdom. Okay? I remember... uh, a dear friend of mine that I led to Christ. Um, we had done some awful things together. Um, he was from Michigan. I was from Ohio. I don't know how we ever overcome that, but we managed. And uh, we were, uh, as my grandmother would say, when people were kind of ornery, they were characters. And uh, we we were 
we were characters. I remember leaving Franktown one morning uh, just at sunrise. We both rode. At that time, I had an old rigid Harley. He had a Sportster. And we decided we wanted Sturgis t-shirts. And uh, we hopped on them things and we took off to Sturgis early in the morning. Got up to Sturgis, tried to stay out of trouble. Grabbed us some t-shirts and rode back the same day. That was the dumbest thing I'd ever done. <laughs> I had parts of my body doing things that said, you ever do that again, we're leaving. <laughs> and you're on your own, dude. Oh, we did other things. I can use that one. God separated us um, to a number of different things. And in the process of that, uh, God invaded my soul. And uh, I call it an invasion uh, because I was dumb enough to try to fight back. Um, I know you guys maybe not, but I did my best to withhold him. And then one day I run into him again. And he looked at me and he says, what's different? Now, he had been raised in the church. Of course, in Michigan, it's Lutheran. And uh, I explained to him. And uh, we had, some of you will remember the guy who came here, it's been several months ago, who was my pastor here. Um, he came and heard Al preach. And, uh, and it was through our friendship and that change that Ed entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he was my friend. I tell everybody, I knew Ed longer than I knew my wife. So um, I can imagine the joy that Philip had when he told his friend that he had found the one that they had been searching for. Let me introduce you. See, I believe that friendships usually will provide the best context for evangelism. That has been my success, and it sure looks like it was some of Philip's success. We introduce Christ into an established relationship. We have a relationship with this person possibly before Christ. And then we have a relationship with Christ and we introduce this person to our other friend. See, in that friendship relationship, there is already love, there is already trust, there is already respect. Then it is only natural to share the joy of our own salvation with the one that we care and love for. That joy of our salvation overflows into the friendships that we have. Another thing that I want to share with you about Philip, okay, the one is that his heart was longing. He was in trials and tribulations. He was suffering through a society that was painful. 
Second, he was an evangelist. But there's something about Philip that I believe that every single one of us fits. Some of us fits maybe a little better than others. Now everybody's attention is like, wait a minute. He's getting ready to bust us, ain't he? <laughs> He's going to take something out and hit me right in the knuckles. No. Philip was an optimist. But Philip was a pessimist. And I think every one of us fall into this. It's, uh, I remember, <laughs> you guys ain't going to believe this. Years ago in the mid-70s, I went to college. You're not going to believe this. I know you're like, whoa, what? did they know you were there? <laughs> I didn't go to a lot of classes because it just didn't seem quite profitable. Um, but I remember taking a philosophy class. <laughs> and I remember one time I was in this philosophy class because you could be just as stupid as you wanted to be and you was always right. And that was the thing about philosophy I thought was amazing. You just say anything, it's philosophy, and okay, that's good. And you're like, wow, man, I like this. So you can't fail a test. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> so, all right. But I remember this great debate over, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? And they were going crazy over this. They're back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you, you couldn't believe it. People raising their hands and the professor was, it was like controlling some kind of chaos. And so all of a sudden, cause I'm just sitting there going, wow, man, this is kind of fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so all of a sudden the professor says, you, is the glass half full or half empty? He asked me and I'm like, <laughs> Hey, man, I'm buying my own business. Leave me alone. He says, do you have input into this? I says, it depends on whether you're drinking or pouring. Okay. And everybody's like. (laughs) That's, you know. (laughs) I also look at pessimism and I look at optimism. One is opportunities and one is obstacles. Okay? So is Philip. In one sense, Philip was an optimist. He recognized Jesus as Messiah instantaneously. He immediately saw the opportunity to share his discovery with Nathaniel. That's an optimist. That is a person who looks at it and says, right on. But in another sense, he was a pessimist. There were some occasions that he failed to see what Christ could accomplish in spite of the obstacle. I know without you even making eye contact with me, that you all can say amen. There are times when an obstacle gets in your way and your immediate response is what? Impossible. Why? It's an obstacle. Let me tell you something. You know what the biggest obstacle that ever existed in humanity? Any of us getting saved. 
There is no greater obstacle than that, than a man to be redeemed to a holy God. Really? Really? I'll go back to what I touched on a couple of weeks ago. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength for a nanosecond of your existence? That seems like an obstacle to me. How in the world can you get saved? Listen, John's Gospel, chapter 6. Jesus has just got done teaching and healing crowds of thousands, and he'd been at it all day. All day. Teaching, doing miracles. Thousands of people. Verse 5, Therefore Jesus lifted his eyes, and seeing a very large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 5,000. Philip, being the optimist, the pragmatist, the calculator, I think Philip might have been a bookkeeper for fishing. Get 12 ones, then you'll have 12 ones. You get 13 ones, and you got one extra, then you're 12. But he was pessimistic at times because he looked at the obstacle of his late in the day and they didn't have enough money to even feed these. Being a pragmatist, being a person who looks at the information that he has, could reach one conclusion, only one conclusion. This is utterly impossible. Jesus, what in the world are you thinking? Look at verse 6. This, he said, was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus was testing the optimistic pessimist. See, he knew all along that this was a test for Philip. You ever thought about that? The feeding of the 5,000 was to fix one person. That's what it says. And you know what? I think about it. This shouldn't have been that big a deal. I've been waiting on Messiah. I told Nathaniel about it. This ought to be a piece of cake. I'd already been at the wedding in Canaan. I saw him turn water into wine. Feeding 5,000 is a no problem. Despite that, Philip flunked. Look what it says. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone who received a little. If we had 200 years wages. That's what he just said. We wouldn't have enough to feed all these people. A denarii was a year's wage. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. I already told you about that. There's a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. But for this, so many? You know what? I, 
I love about Philip he was given a test and he flunked it miserably he didn't even get close I mean <laughs> Andrew says we got a couple of loaves of bread I mean I don't know what we're going to do with it but you know and I mean Philip's like you're out of your mind you've been out in the sun too long too many healings going on. You're all wore out. You ain't thinking clear. You know what I like though? That brings me great comfort in this. Jesus didn't give up on Philip. I think about in my own life, in my own ministry, how many times if I was Jesus, I would have flat out give up on that knucklehead. Five loaves, two fish. He created enough food to feed the entire crowd and have some left over for the disciples. See, here's what I mean. Feeding of the 5,000 was for one person. He replaced Philip's pessimism by showing divine sufficiency. And he'd already seen it. But you know what? When you think about the wedding feast at Canaan. Come on, it's a wedding feast. Give me a break. So he made water into wine. Who cares? It wasn't like these people were going to die. You could send them home. But you got all these people out by the Sea of Galilee. They've been out there all day listening, watching. And Jesus wants to feed them dinner. He replaced this pessimism by showing divine sufficiency. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How many times have you run into an obstacle and God showed you divine sufficiency to overcome the obstacle? And how many times is it a short-lived memory? Let us be honest with each other. There's a little of Philip in each of us, isn't there? Now, some of us are a little more optimistic than others. Uh, I have been called a tigger. And uh, I don't know if that's pessimism or I just bounce. <laughs> I mean, and that's what tiggers do, bounce. I, I, it's not like I deal with the obstacle. I just bounce over it <laughs> or bounce into it or whatever is necessary. But I do know some Eeyores. And they just sat there and woe is me an obstacle. And I look at their lives because I've known a lot of you for a long time. And I can look at you and say, how many times has he shown you divine sufficiency? My grace is sufficient. It's no different than when I started out this message. Yeah, it's hot. It's real hot outside. But you could be with my son. And when my son can tell me, Dad, El Paso ain't that bad. <laughs> you know he's learning a lesson. Because I was at El Paso and I said, Oh yeah, it is, son. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good place for an army base. And leave it at that. But there's a little of Philip in all of us, isn't there? We see that personality. 
And yet, we've also seen the provisions of our Lord. We experience God's saving power and we've seen His answered prayer. But sometimes we let pessimism rob us of the joy of seeing His work through the obstacles in our lives. Is that not true? I know some people right now that are dealing with some stuff that it seems like it's almost impossible. And yet I think, well, God's brought this far to just say, oh, I'm sending you to El Paso. <laughs> no. He's taking care of it. And you know what? There's times, listen, one of the most horrific things that I ever had to deal with my entire life was the day of the Columbine shooting. I never seen anything like it. I, I got over there the day of the shooting, met, was meeting with the parents in the, in the library. And as the day went on, the buses would come and bring the kids that they had brought out and they'd meet their parents and there'd be this great elation. And then they would go off and get in their cars and go home. And as the day went on, your crowd started getting smaller and smaller. And then all of a sudden the sheriff came in and said, there ain't any more. And you're like, what profound words do you leash out there now? I'm convinced that the suffering of this age can't compare to the glory to come. I don't work. I left their heart broken. And I thought, you know what? Regardless of what I see right here, God is glorified. I don't know how. He showed me three days later with the district attorney. And uh, what was her name? Katie Couric. He showed me with this big stack of files the district attorney had. He says, this is what we spend per student in Jefferson County. This is what we spend per cop in Jefferson County. This is how we interact between the schools and the police department in Jefferson County. And how can this happen? And I just sat there and smiled for a second. Man has his best. You get Columbine. God in his glory, you get the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us keep our eyes on Christ. There's too many of us in this room right now do not trust in His sufficiency. You ask yourself a simple question. What is He not sufficient for? Let us each be thankful what he has done let's pray father thank you for philip father as i was looking at this man and your provisions in his life i did see a lot of me father i pray for this fellowship those who would listen to this message on the internet that father they would hear you not me they would understand that sufficiency is christ our sufficiency belongs to you who spoke existence into being. You who hold the atoms together. Father, let us bow our knee with teachable spirits in humility that we may understand Your ways are not our ways. And yet, Father, as we've looked at just this small group, 
We each fall into different aspects of it. Help us, Lord. Help us to hunger and thirst for Your Word. Father, we may understand. Help us to grab a hold of the fact that You have the desert room bloom. No man will ever see it. And it is solely for Your good pleasure. Father, we who are called by Your name, let us rejoice. Father, let us grow in our understanding of Your sufficiency with every breath You grace us. In Christ's name, Amen.